Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're reading verses 3 to 7 this morning. Uh, We're in a series called Grace for the Week. Uh, Now, today marks um, actually my seventh, the beginning of my seventh year uh, as pastor here at Cornerstone. Um, I was called and started October 2nd, 2016. Uh, I remember those days, those early days, very well. We were an entirely different church. Um, Looking out at this room, uh, I think 85% of you weren't here uh, then. So we were entirely different. The people, um, you know, were just different. We were in a borrowed building uh, at a really inconvenient afternoon time. We didn't even have a church sign. We had a sign on a feather flag that we would post in about 15 minutes before letting people know we were there, and then we'd pull it up after, and no one <laughs> knew that we had met there for worship. Um, and I remember in that time, I had my own uh, personal struggles. Um, and I can say it now without embarrassment, but uh, I was a little embarrassed earlier. Uh, when I was called at Cornerstone, I was asked to come uh, late summer, um, but I asked to delay it until October. Uh, and I never told people the reason why. It's because my birthday is late in September, uh, and I wanted to be able to say I was 30 instead of 29. Uh, and so I asked for my birthday to pass so I could say, you know, I'm not in my 20s, I'm in my, my 30s, which really just, I, I share that because it reveals in my own heart um, just a sense of my own feeling of, of weakness and, and unimpressiveness, and, uh, you know, I have nothing to offer. Um, and our church felt like that. And uh, in a lot of ways, this was a really good season for our church because it really uh, helped us to discover that despite our weaknesses and, and uh, inadequacies, our empty-handedness, that, that God's grace met us and was enough for us. And, you know, now entering year seven for, for me and, and different years for you guys, much has changed. Our, our church has changed. I've changed. Uh, we have a new building. We have a uh, different time, uh, two services. We, we have a sign outside that's permanent. Um, but despite all those changes, what hasn't changed is that we are still a weak and unimpressive people uh, serving a strong and impressive and mighty God who meets us in our weaknesses with a grace that is enough. And that's really the point and purpose of Second Corinthians that God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And it's our hope that every week when we come and we gather around his word, specifically in this series, that God would give grace for the weak. And so friends, if you are able, please stand with me. Standing is an act of worship as we read and receive God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. First, we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Kind Father, by your Holy Spirit, 
speak your words of truth and comfort and your promises to us. Give to us listening ears and give to us a willing heart to receive. Do this for your glory. Do this for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I always wanted to preach a sermon series on suffering. I had uh, the greatest title for it. Uh, I had titled it in my draft in a document, The Ring We All Wear, <laughs> a series on suffering. You know, suffering is the ring that none of us want to wear. We <laughs> want to wear an engagement ring, a wedding ring, but nobody wants to wear suffering. And yet, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is something you can't avoid. Nobody is immune to suffering in this life. You know, at any given moment, the reality is some of you are suffering or the person next to you is suffering deeply, intensely, personally. Physically, people suffer in aches and pains in the body. Relationally, people suffer as relationships are strained. Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, financially, we struggle. But the reality is most of you would not know the struggles of another person because we do such a good job of hiding it, don't we? Often when you come to church, that expression, putting on your Sunday best, doesn't just refer to the clothes you wear. Often it refers to the expressions you put on, the emotions you share, the answers you give. When asked how you're doing, you smile and politely say, I'm doing good. How are you? Why do we so quickly hide this part of our lives? And a big part of it is because much like the Corinthian culture, our current culture prizes and cherishes strength. We celebrate those who are put together lives that are happy and comfortable and successful and pleasant. And we don't want to hear or be confronted with our own weaknesses and messiness. We don't want to admit that we're not all put together. So we become masters at hiding it, don't we? We become experts at covering it up. And so it's with that that Apostle Paul does something very interesting, very surprising in this letter as he opens it up and begins sharing openly and freely about his own sufferings and his own afflictions and his own struggles and his own adversities. And this was really strange for the Corinthians to hear because they wanted their teachers and their preachers to be strong and confident and untouchable and immune to life's hardship because they wanted a gospel that was centered on glory for the strong, not a gospel centered on grace for the weak. And here was Apostle Paul, completely transparent and vulnerable. Six times in these five verses, Paul mentioned suffering and afflictions. And the church thought, man, if he's an apostle that's suffering this much, is he really truly an apostle? Is he legitimate? But in the midst of Paul's talk about suffering and affliction, he almost doubles the amount of time he talks about comfort. Ten times in these verses, he mentions the comfort of God. And I mention that because it says a lot about our theology of suffering. The hope of Christianity is not that we will escape suffering, but that God meets us in our suffering with comfort. And it's actually because of that, that believers can enter into suffering and come out on the other side of it stronger in faith and not weaker. It's actually how a Christian can endure suffering and actually be built up under it instead of crushed under it. It's actually how on the other side of suffering, a Christian can come out blessing God instead of being bitter at God. 
This morning, as we look at these verses in our passage today, I want to talk about three things that we see regarding comfort in suffering. Three things we see. The first is the God of all comfort. The second is the goal of his comfort. And third is the gospel of comfort. So we'll begin with this, the God of all comfort. Our passage begins in a very unexpected way. It begins with what's called a benediction. Paul writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, when you think of God and you think about attributes of God, does your mind tend to drift toward the lofty attributes of God? Who is God? What is he like? He's holy. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. He's majestic. He's righteous. He's eternal. We think of these grand and lofty attributes of God, but when Paul introduces his God in the midst, in the context of suffering, he calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And what he wants the reader to know is that in the midst of suffering, God isn't the God of wrath and anger and punishment and judgment, but he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Paul says, this is what I want you to know about God. Yes, certainly there are times to know God is holy, 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 that he is perfect in all his ways, completely righteous. But Paul says in the context of suffering, what you need to know most about God is that he's the father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's how you should identify him. That's what you should associate with him. I mean, there are a lot of people uh, in our church with the same name. And that happens as a growing church, you end up having people with uh, the same name. One of the most common names uh, is Steve. Uh, if you don't know this, a third of our CG leaders are named Steve. Um, but Steve doesn't, of course, take the prize. We all know the name that takes the prize. It's the name Dan. There are so many Dans in this church. We're going to make it a requirement for membership now. But when we say Dan, because there are so many Dans, we need to now specify which Dan. Sometimes we do it by last names. Sometimes you just throw adjectives in there, descriptors. Oh, this is the Dan. Which Dan are you talking about? Deacon Dan, Muscle Dan, FBI Dan, Dan Jr. If you're a Dan and you want to know what Dan we call you, just come talk to me. We all have descriptors, adjectives of which Dan we're talking about. When Paul talks about the God who is over your suffering, who is he? He's the father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. This is what you need to know about him. But the two are not separate. The two are linked together. The father of mercies is the God of all comfort, meaning that the mercies of God in your life aren't evidenced to the degree that he takes away suffering. That's not how God exercises his mercy in your life. God exercises his mercy in your life by meeting you in your suffering with comfort. That's an important perspective to have because we imagine if God is so merciful and loving and kind, wouldn't he remove all suffering, all affliction, all hardship, all adversity? Wouldn't he get rid of that? But his mercy is not found in subtraction. It's found in addition. His mercy is not found in the absence of affliction, but in the presence of comfort so that you may endure. The God of all comforts meets you in suffering. How does he comfort us? Comforts us in many ways, and we could go through all of the scriptures to talk about them. There are two that I want to highlight. The first is this, God sympathizes with your sufferings. Now, I know this sounds so simple, but it's profound. Pa Paul writes in verse 5 that we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. And what he means by that, at the very least, is that Christ, 
The Son of God came to the earth in human flesh, and he suffered like one of us as one of us. Christ's sufferings means Christ, the eternal Son of God himself, suffered. So many times when we talk about um, hardships and enduring trials and, and turmoil in life, we jump to the sovereignty of God. But we often forget about the suffering of God. That yes, it's powerful to hear God say to you, I planned exactly that to happen in your life. That's powerful. But it's comforting to hear God say to you, I know exactly what's happening in your life because I've been there too. God sympathizes with us in our suffering. And do you know what this means? It means when he looks at you in your tears, in your sorrow, in your mourning, in your grief, he doesn't simply nod his head as a divine therapist who's heard similar stories to you and goes, yes, ah, I know what you're talking about. I've read about this before. I've, I came across this in, in a clinical. But rather God hears, sees, and he's familiar with your grief and your pain. He understands your sorrows and your tears because he experienced that suffering in the flesh. So think about this. God knows your suffering not by his omniscience, but by acquaintance. Think about that. God knows, is familiar with your suffering, not by his omniscience, but by his own acquaintance with it. Or as D.A. Carson once put it, the God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about, not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. Having suffered himself, God doesn't scold you in your suffering, but he sympathizes with you. It's tremendous comfort to hear the God of the universe saying, I know what you're going through because I've been there myself. And here's the second way God comforts us. God gives promises in your suffering. Now, it's one thing to say God comforts us by being a sympathetic listener. It's another thing to say God comforts us by promising he'll take care of it. Now, one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture just also happens to be the shortest verse in Scripture. Does anyone know what it is? John 11, 30, 40, uh, 35. Yeah, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The context of Jesus wept is uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus has just died. His sisters, Martha and Mary, are grieving and mourning, and Jesus shows up. He knows about the resurrection. He knows what he's going to do, and yet he weeps. And there's comfort to know that the Son of God wept himself. But it's not simply that Jesus wept. It's that Jesus also promised, he promises to do something because when Jesus weeps, the picture there is, yes, it's comforting, but is he as helpless as I am? Is he just sitting there weeping like, like, like I am and, and, and is unable to do anything? When the truth of the gospel tells us that the God who wept with tears is the God who will wipe away tears. John records Jesus wept, but John also records in his apocalyptic vision in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Yes, it's good news that Jesus weeps but it's better news that he wipes away those tears. God speaks to us in his scriptures, promises a comfort. These are not naive thoughts or wishful hopes. 
The scriptures are a treasure trove of God's gospel promises. For God not only sympathizes with us, but he speaks his words of comfort. Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, friends, in the midst of suffering and affliction, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comforts doesn't remove himself from you, but he reveals himself to you. The sympathizing God is the speaking God, the God of all comfort. Second, the goal of his comfort. Paul goes on to say something unique about suffering, that if you receive it and embrace it, might actually be offensive. It may not be what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. Because he goes on to write in verse 4 that the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, the purpose so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul says the goal of God's comfort is to actually minister to others. Now that's radical. God meets you in your suffering. He allows the suffering to happen. He meets you in it so that you may bless another person. Now we all know, whether by personal experience or by observing it in somebody else, that suffering has a horrible way of turning people in on themselves. Suffering people, you don't say this to them while they're suffering, but we all know suffering people are the most selfish people. Because when you suffer, what's the very first question you ask? Why, why me, why is this happening to me? You become the center, everything orbits around you. The question reflects the individualistic focus of our culture because it assumes the only way that I can be okay with this suffering, the only way that it can be excusable and I can let God off the hook is if he gives me an answer of how this is actually helping me, of how this is benefiting me. And Paul comes along and he says, what if your suffering and the comfort you received in it is not even actually about you, but so that through you, you might share the comfort of God with others. I mean, that's a radical thought. And it makes us ask the question, if you knew that enduring suffering and being comforted by God in it would actually benefit and help somebody else, would you be willing to endure it? If you knew that walking through the fire would spare somebody else, would you be willing to walk through it? If you knew being cast into the storm would spare somebody else, would you be willing to be thrown into it? For what God does is he pours out his comfort upon us in an overflowing manner. So with that, we might comfort others. Now, I know that can be tough to grasp, tough to accept, but think about it like this. Imagine for a moment that God spared you from every possible earthly suffering. 
Everything that you don't want to happen in your life, he spared you from. So you never experienced loss. You were never hurt, never betrayed, never rejected, uh, never had a disease, never had any aches and pains on your body. You were never afraid. You were never alone. You were never anxious. This is the kind of life we want. It's the kind of life when God doesn't give us, we think, oh God, you don't love us. But if your life was actually the way you wanted it to be, spared of all earthly suffering, can you imagine what kind of person you would be? Because the God honest truth is you wouldn't be caring or compassionate at all. You'd be cold and calloused. Because even with the best intentions, suffering would be such a foreign experience to you that you could only, anytime you extended empathy, it would just be an abstract exercise. That yeah, you may be able to manage putting a hand on somebody's back, but you would never be able to shed tears with them. Because you could only hypothesize the emotions and the experience of others. You would never actually be deeply moved yourself. I mean, even on the most simplest level, we understand the way that enduring suffering and receiving comfort actually helps us in our ministry to others. Think about a toothache. Have you ever had a toothache? Now, a toothache is awful. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a small portion of your body, and yet if you get a toothache, you know how excruciatingly painful it is. You know how it can dampen your mood. It can distract you from work. It can make you feel desperate and needy. It could knock you out of commission. You know, I have to admit when I was younger and we would gather for a prayer request in the church and some of the older uh, brothers and sisters in Christ would share their prayer requests and they'd always share about, um, you know, needing healing for a backache or a, a toothache or tooth pain. And, you know, in, in, in my younger years, I, I would always hear that and just judge that kind of prayer request. Really? You're a fallen sinner who desperately needs the grace of God to kill your lust and flesh and live unto holiness. And as I come before God and I pray for you, you're asking me to pray for your tooth? Why don't you pray for something more spiritual? And then I got older and I started having toothaches. And I felt what it's like to be knocked out of commission and to feel completely helpless and useless. And then I started sharing prayer requests for my tooth saying, hey, brother, can you pray? Can you also fast for me? Can you go to that prayer mountain and give three days to praying? For Why? Because you've understood it. But what ended up happening is being surrounded by such loving people who I had a toothache would come and bring me ice cream and love and comfort and sympathize with me. Now, when I hear that people have toothaches, I write it down and I pray for it. And I'm able to show comfort and sympathy. See, that's the way this thing works. What if you're called to endure suffering so you might experience God's comfort so that you could comfort other suffering people? What if your cup was emptied so God could fill it so that you could pour into others? And how might that reframe your experience, your interpretation of your suffering? And Paul understood it. He says in verse 6, if we are afflicted, so if we're enduring these hardships and sufferings, it's for your comfort and your salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. What if God were up to the same thing in our lives? Meeting us in our suffering with comfort so that we might be of comfort to others. What would that 
do to this church. We would become a company, a congregation of caring, compassionate comforters. You know, when you think about sanctification, and I ask you, what, what, what does it mean to be sanctified? You say it's, you, you grow Christ-like. And often what we mean is we grow Christ-like in our character, more holy, free from sin. But what if sanctification is not just growing more Christ-like in character, but growing more Christ-like in compassion, in comfort? What if you actually understood that what you endure, the comfort you receive, is so that through you, through your presence to people in their darkest moments, you are incarnating the presence of God to them, comforting them with the comfort God comforts you? What if through somebody's most loneliest hours, your prayers and words are the way that God has ordained to make himself known and draw near to that person? What if through your tears, hurting people could see the tears God himself sheds and know that in their sorrow and mourning, he is with them? You know, too many times when we comfort others, we don't comfort with the comfort God comforts us. We, we comfort out of our convenience, out of uh, impatience. Isn't that why our comfort often looks very awful and inappropriate and insensitive? Maybe you've done something like this before. Somebody's suffering and you hear about it and you try to teach them a theological lesson. Somebody's suffering and you hear about it and you compare your story of suffering with theirs, minimizing them, saying, ah, it's just part of life. Have you ever heard of someone's suffering and you start creating imaginative interpretations? Oh, I think God is up to this in your suffering. Have you ever heard of someone suffering and from a distance not drawing near you just through impersonal Bible verses? Thinking it's like a handful of Advil and if they open their mouth and you throw a handful, one of them will get in. I'm guilty of this. You may be guilty of this. This is how we comfort out of our own comfort, but the comfort out of the comforts of God it's to sympathize. It's to draw near. It's to share with promises. So often the promises we share with people aren't simply the words we share, but the presence. That's the promise. When God says, I am with you, he is with us through the saints. Might that mean we need to give up being like Job's friends? Oh, Job's friends, who prodded and poked at a suffering Job, thinking that if I ask him enough questions, put him through this inquisition, I can discover his hidden unrepented sins that's causing this suffering. Instead, the goal of our comfort, it's to share the comfort with which God has comforted us to others. Which brings us to our third and last point, the gospel of comfort. Now, Paul is able to bless God in the hardest of circumstances. When I know I would grow bitter at him, Paul blesses him. Now, God's comfort didn't come to Paul because Paul deserved it or merited it. It wasn't because Paul was an apostle or a servant of God or so righteous or uh, obediently following him that God comforted him. No, God's comfort comes to all. All those united to Jesus by faith. Verse 5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Meaning at least this, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, that means that the suffering that enters into your life is not necessarily a result of God punishing you for your spiritual failures. 
Sometimes we think, oh, I suffer. I must have done something wrong. That's Job's friend's logic. But Paul's logic is, why do you suffer? Because you are united to a suffering Savior. That you are united to a man whose life was shaped around and centered around a cross. Because Jesus was, as the Old Testament calls him, a suffering servant, a man of sorrows. From the beginning of his life to the end of his life, his life was marked with suffering. He who committed no sins. His first breath at birth was in a wooden trough. He didn't even have a place to be born. His last breath on earth in his death was on a wooden cross crucified for sins he didn't commit. He was born in a borrowed manger. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and everything else in his life in between was full of suffering, betrayed and rejected by his closest friends in his hour of need. Tempted, accused, attacked by Satan in his physically weakened state. He bore the pain and agony of Roman crucifixion as nails were pierced in his hands and feet. He wrestled with the inner turmoil, sweating out blood as he contemplated his death. He cried out in spiritual anguish as his father turned his face for him as he took on our sins. You see, Jesus was sinless in every way and yet suffered for your salvation. We are united to this suffering Savior. Sometimes we say this, we may have this prayer, Jesus, we want to know you. We want to be like you. What if the answer to that is suffering? Because in your suffering, you're being like Christ. But the verse also means that it's through union with Jesus that we are comforted. That comfort doesn't come as a reward and a prize to the spiritually faithful. But it comes to all who are united to Jesus because comfort is a benefit of the gospel. If I ask you, what are the benefits of the gospel? We understand them spiritually. Justification. Adoption. Sanctification, those are the benefits of the gospel. And you're not Jesus, so he gives me these things. But do you also understand that in your union with Jesus, one of the benefits is comfort. God comforts you. Yes, Christ came. He lived, died, rose again, so that you might be forgiven of your sins. Welcomed into God's family, made holy in his eyes, declared righteous. But the gospel is also the good news that in Christ you have the comfort of God. God has been doing this in the Old Testament. We see it in the suffering and affliction of Israel while in slavery. We read in Exodus 3, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Yes, God came to save sinners, but God also came to comfort sufferers. And what God does for the Israelites in Exodus 3 is pointing to the time when God would come in the flesh because he heard the cries and the moans and the grief, the sufferings and anguish and afflictions of his people. The gospel is a gospel of comfort, which means if we've received this, and we've been ministered to it by it, then we also begin to comfort others. We incarnate the love, the presence, the promise of God to others. Let me end with this. This is an illustration from John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress tells a tale of a man named Christian who is on a journey to the celestial city. 
And on this journey, he sees the celestial city in the distance, but there's only one obstacle left. It's a river to cross. Now he's with his friend, Hopeful, and he gets to the river and he's looking at it, unsure of how deep it is. And he asked the men stationed at the river how deep it is. And their response is surprising. It's a bit ambiguous. They say, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of this place. Meaning what you believe about the king will determine how deep or how shallow the river is. And so they begin to cross it. And Christian begins sinking and he cries out and says, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. He's suffering. And his friend Hopeful responds steadfastly, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom. It is good. Krishna responds, ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. Hopeful lifts Christian's head from out of the water and says, brother, I see the gate and men standing by it to receive us. And Christian continues spiraling in despair. And Hopeful finally says to him, be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes you whole. And Bunyan writes that with that, Christian breaks out in a loud voice. Oh, I see him again. And he tells me when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And in that moment, Christian feels the firm ground beneath him. And he discovers that the rest of the river is quite shallow. You see, friends, those who belong to Jesus are united to him in his sufferings. And it means your life from here until the celestial city requires you traverse through the river. And as you walk through the river, there will be deep and cold water. You will face strong tempest winds. You will be hit and crushed by mighty waves. Affliction should be of no surprise. But on the other side of the river, at the gate of the celestial city, stands one who promises. Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. You see, friends, the gospel of comfort is yours in Christ. And as you discover the God of all comfort and the goal of his comfort, you'll become like the friend hopeful to walk alongside others in their afflictions in the unknowns and un uncertainties of life in the river. And as they struggle and suffer and stumble alongside of you, you can turn with your feet planted on Christ and say to them, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Let's pray.